0: Good morning, Redeemer, let me pray, we'll get into Isaiah 48, Uh, God, I do just pray for your spirit uh, to come and teach us your ways, Um, yeah, I'm struck during worship, singing, you're never going to let me down, and then in Isaiah you say that you try us in the furnace of affliction. And um, I think only your spirit can bridge that gap. So help me to be helpful. Send your helper. Amen. (laughs) When I uh, scheduled out the sermon series... I was kind of sad that I didn't get to preach this passage because Joe Brinkman was scheduled to preach this week, he caught off scared, (laughs) said he had COVID, don't believe it. In general, because I like to preach on truths and confounding truths and the sovereignty of God and... um, But these things are really personal, right? This year. So it's really one thing to just say objectively and teach the truth that God refines his people in the furnace of affliction and to gain a theory for that. And then there's life like there's actual humans. It's you, it's all of you to a different extent. And it's not fun. It's called affliction. So, I think I'm learning to run less quickly at passages like this. And yet, here it is. So, let's go. I'm going to do a quick overview, highlights, not verse by verse, but just highlights of the passage to get our bearings. And then we're going to zoom in. On verse 10 verses 1 through 2 God is addressing his people this is who he's speaking to and this matters and we'll circle back to him when we talk about the furnace of affliction and its refining process it's talking about his people affliction is not refining for everyone it's refining for his people the house of Jacob who were called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah so God's people who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. And then he has this verse where he says, but not in truth or right. And I think what he's doing there is he's saying, yeah, you're my people, but you got some issues. Right? There's some sin stuff in there. Some impurities. And so he's addressing his people and saying there's some work to be done. Verse 3 he talks about the former things that he had declared, and he, we see this repeated pattern in the book of Isaiah where he says, I have predicted the exile and your return, and that's proof of who I am. That prophecy and fulfilled prophecy is the proof of the living God. I foretold it, and I did it. Verse 4 to 5 says why. Why did he do it this way? Why did he prophesy and foretell their exile and return and then do it? And he says this in verse 4, Because I know that you are obstinate. I love that word. And your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. It means you're hard of believing and knowing. And he says a little later, You would, if I didn't do things my way, you would think your idols are delivering you. You're quick to trust in anything but me. And so... To break through that brass forehead, he uses prophecy, and he comes to them and he foretells their exile and their return, and he says, this is proof of the living God. Verses 6 through 8 basically says, I'm not done yet, right? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things you have not known. I'm going to continue my work in you. Why? Because you need work, and I'm good. And I'm going to work on you because of that. So let's zoom in here on verses 9 through 11. This is where this is all leading. Two main things he says in verse 9 and 11. I do this for my own sake. We've talked about this, how God has staked his fame and glory and reputation in his church. And there's a great promise there because his glory he will not give to another, and he will have his glory. It's the whole purpose of history is to reveal the glory of God. Right? Redemptive history is the unfolding of the glory of God, which will culminate in the revelation of Jesus Christ, where every tongue in heaven—that's heavens, that's angels—and on earth as humans and all the creatures and under the earth, including demons, will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And he has staked his reputation. On his church which means he won't give up on you he will not stop he will bring to completion the work that he has begun his reputation is riding on it and so he's going to refine us he's going to change us the church the world looks at the church right now and Depends on where you are, sees different things. Some people see the witness and believe and are transformed. Some people mock. Some people point out the weakness and hypocrisy of the church. And you know what? They're just right. They're just right. But guess what? God does not give up. Like he has staked his fame on the church, and he is not done with me. He's not done with you. He's not done with your family. He's not done with Redeemer Church. He's not done with the global church. He's not done. And he will change us and transform us. And there's one place, there's a lot of ways God works, but there's, I believe, a key way that he works, and it resurfaces throughout the scriptures, and we're going to see this here, and it's what he calls here the furnace of affliction. Verse 10, I have refined you, but not as silver. And what he means there is not in an actual furnace, right? I didn't, I didn't refine you that way. But I refined you in a different type of furnace, the furnace of affliction. Affliction. So we get to this idea of what is the purpose of suffering? What is the purpose of affliction? Everybody has wrestled with this question. And the scripture tells us that for Christians, it's refining. See, most religions view affliction as retribution. It's it's response to sin. You must have done something wrong. So you have to make sacrifices and appease the gods and do good works or go to church and then maybe God will take it easy on you or the gods and your life will go well. And there's a half-truth there because in a sense, suffering is retribution, like on a global scale. I think Christianity answers this in two ways. There is A sense in which it's retribution. Listen to this. This is Romans 8, 20, describing the world, creation, and all life on it. The creation has been subjected to futility. Do you feel that? We can have good days and better days, and maybe the economy's up and the economy's down, you get a decent job, but like, do you feel the futility? Do you feel like exiles? Do you feel like we're not home? There's a reason for that. It's because of sin. It is a response to sin. The creation was subjected to futility because of sin. It's the reason for death, war, famine, heartbreak, poverty, injustice, and death. And we see that there's this final retribution that Jesus talks about when he comes riding on the clouds, Revealing himself fully. And Jesus is going to do a final work and he's going to gather his people. But he's also going to gather not his people. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. This is Matthew, I forget, 17 maybe. The Son of Man, Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there is a sense in which there's a retributive uh, aspect to suffering. But for God's people who are redeemed, it's transformed. Like what happens when you throw something into the furnace? It depends on what it is. It depends on what it is. Perhaps you've heard this saying, right, the same fire that melts butter hardens the egg or forges iron, right? What does the fire do? What does the affliction do? It depends on what it is. So what happens to you when you go into the furnace? It depends on what you are. If you're not a child of God, that affliction is not a refining fire. It is retribution. If you are covered by the blood, if you are in Christ, if you have believed and you have been born again, if you are these people that God refers to in verse 1, the house of Jacob called by the name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord of God of Israel, even if it's not in truth and right. If you are that person, the furnace refines. It is a refining fire. There's this analogy here of silver, right? What happens when you refine silver in the fire. So I'm not a metallurgist or anything, but I know a little bit about this. If you go out and you get ore, raw materials, right? You want to purify it. You throw it in the furnace. And what happens is that the impurities in the silver or iron or gold, whatever it is, are drawn to the outside. Then you can brush it off, it's called dross. The inside remains pure, the impurities are drawn out. God is drawing out impurities in his people, and it hurts, and it hurts really bad. And we're all in different places, right? And there, everyone gets the furnace, though, is what I want us to know. Everyone gets it, there is no other way. And I'm reminded of a dear brother, this spring, who said to me, it's a high price. And so these things are not light. But it's what it is. It's it's the world God has made. And it's the life he has lived. God is conforming us to the image of his son. If you want the same product, you've got to go through the same process. Here's Jesus' process. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, what did he do? Here's a biography. He offered up prayers and supplic- supplications with loud cries and tears. That's not a chipper life. This is our God. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who's able to save from death. He, this is puzzling. We've got to sit here a little bit. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. This is the way. The Son of God learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Here's what this is teaching: it's that the perfection of Jesus was brought to full revelation. It's not that Jesus had impurities. But that Jesus was put in the furnace of affliction and was revealed to be pure. Made to be seen in his full perfection. But it was affliction. Loud cries and tears. This is your God. Like I, don't, I just pray that it's some kind of comfort to you. That your, that your God cried out Loudly through tears. He's not gone. He's not unaware. He's not removed. He is as involved as it gets. There is no one on earth or in heaven who has ever been more intimately concerned or involved with your affliction. Whatever it may be. Like, we can't even imagine it. I was talking with a brother this week, and he asked me, have you called me? And you know what? No. You're right. I haven't. So go to him who is able to save from death, who's intimately involved and who cares. We are Christians term literally means little Christs. So we're going to be like him. This is just a pattern. We see it in Isaiah, that God's people are taken to Babylon and then brought back, and then he says, I'm not done. (laughs) See this in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, when God first called his people, and he took them to Egypt. He took them there, and then he pulled them out, and he says this in Deuteronomy 4.20, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace. Egypt was a furnace in which God was refining and crafting his people. Out of Egypt, why? To be a people of my own inheritance. We see this in the New Testament. When Peter writing to the churches, says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So there are various trials. It may be martyrdom. It may be persecution. It may be mockery. It may be your indwelling sin. It may be personal loss. It may be relational stress. It may be being a member of this church. Maybe this church is your furnace. There are various trials, but he says this: there's a purpose, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying: There is, if you are Christ, there is in you faith. It's there. You may struggle to see it. You may struggle to live out of it. But it has been put in you by the living God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is there. And then there's all this dross. And God is saying, we're going to do some work here so that that faith is revealed and will result in the praise of my glory. That's what he's doing. There are various trials. This is Jesus after his resurrection talking with Peter and, we believe, John. This is, many of you are familiar with this passage when he asks Peter, do you love me three times, right? And Peter, yes, Lord, I love you, even though he had denied Jesus three times because he claims Jesus but not in truth and right. Right there's unbelief that needs to be worked on. He comes back to him, do you love me? Yes, I love you. You know I love you. Then he says this, feed my sheep. And then he prophesies over him. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you when you do not want to go. It's a little mysterious. What does it mean? The next verse. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. God is complicated, Jesus is complicated. Gosh. It's not a walk in the park. It's a walk to the cross. And then he said to him, follow me. That's to Peter, right? Peter turned, having heard that, how do you receive that? We know that Peter was crucified, some say upside down, because he didn't deem himself worthy to be crucified right side up as Jesus was. Peter in that moment, right, turned and saw, we believe John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, well, what about him? Say something like that to him. But Here's the deal. Is this is various trials. And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, as in, maybe he won't die that gruesome death, or maybe he won't die at all, and I'll come and just catch him up in the air. He's just saying, what if that's my will? What is that to you? You follow me. So we each have our little furnace, if you may. And Jesus says, don't look left or right and compare, because and, you don't know. You just follow me follow me. You follow me. James says this. Count it all joy or consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, you see a pattern here, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. My takeaway right now from this text is that we have to be reminded to consider it joy because it's not our default. It's strange. It's a strange thing. How could this be good? How could this be good? Whatever it is. I don't need to make the list. You have your lists. How could this be good, God? Could this be good? It's, it's not, it's, it goes against our flesh. It goes against our thinking. And God, I believe, radically reorients us, reorients us to the cross. This is this. This is the way. So consider, like actively. You've got to actively consider. Like all too often, I think we just pass through trials, either passively Or we consider the wrong things. We consider others and we compare. Or we consider the injustice and we consider uh, the pain. We consider all kinds of things. And God is speaking to you, consider, like, by grace, through faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, like, orient yourself under me. Like, fight. Because we are obstinate and we are slow to see what he's doing in our dross. I was listening to Voice of the Martyrs. It was a podcast about the global church and martyrs, particularly the persecuted church. And it was a man who was put in prison in Iran for preaching. In a six by six, solitary confinement, no furniture type concrete so I don't even like that my bed's not great. You know? My bed sucks. Concrete. And he was struggling, right? And then the Holy Spirit said to him, because he asked, "How could you allow this?" And God said, "I didn't allow it. I planned it." And It gave him freedom because God's not absent. God's not distant. This is my plan is what God said to him. So God is with us in the furnace. It's a high price. I pray the Spirit would help us see the high reward. What is that? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I had an illustration in here from the voyage of the Don Treader doesn't seem right right now, plus I stole it from Joe, and he'd probably be be mad, so he can use this later, you can have your sermon back, Joe, I'm done with it, I really don't have anything else, so we're gonna pray, and I wanna invite the response team up, and We're gonna lean into the Lord. I guess it's really ask him what it looks like to follow him in this. Some of you know and are learning and some of you have no idea and are confused. And ask him, right? Ask his spirit. So we'll sing to him and engage in that. This is a lyric in the song Cornerstone. It says my anchor holds within the veil. Here's what I believe that means is that there is a security and a guarantee and a promise and that transcends your weakness and fears. And it is that link to God Himself, like that's who's beyond the veil. It's Him. And you have been anchored there. And it holds nothing will separate us from that. Nothing. So, we're also going to take communion. Um, Hopefully you got a communion cup on the way in. If you didn't, you can grab one by the entryway. And uh, this is where, um, right, where Jesus paid the price, the ultimate price. This is... Yeah, when when Hebrews talks about him offering loud cries through tears, right? It's talking about him in the garden, headed to the cross, and he cried out to him who was able to save him from death. I want us to maybe have a sense of that today. That I don't know. We can kind of say, "Well, it's God. He gave gave His life. Like God can do anything." Like, but in His humanity, in the days of His flesh. Like he came and experienced fear of pain and death and isolation. This was a bloody event, right? So this is where we come and it's a symbol of his dedication to his name and his people and his love for you. Right? So we come and remember. So the bread represents his body. He tells us, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me remember, I would add, his loud cries and tears. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So on your own, or with friends or family as you pray and repent, eat and believe. God, help us. Come and do what we can't. Amen.